your consideration for a few moments this morning, I want you to go with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And there's only 13 verses. I thought about reading them all, but I'm not going to do that. I will skip down through some verses. But we're going to begin with verse number 1, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And it said, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may shew him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba, And when they called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? He said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then the king sent and fetched him out of the house of of Makar, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, it's interesting that we've been talking about this man for several verses. And we haven't even gotten to who he is yet. Now we're introduced to him, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, who was come unto David. He fell on his face and did reverence, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. I love what David said. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely shew thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. Now shalt eat bread at my table continually. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And there's some other things that were told the servants to do for him. But I want to skip down to verse number 13. And the Bible said, So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem. He dwelt in Jerusalem. For he did eat continually at the king's table. And was lame on both his feet. I want to talk to you for a little while this morning about the redefining of life. The redefining of life. Everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. You know, I am very careful this morning in what I want to say because I don't want to sound like a broken record. When I started uh, thinking along this scriptural line earlier this week, I pushed it away because it seems that so much of our preaching lately has been in this vein. And I don't want to seem like I'm just beating a drum. And I certainly don't want you to think that there's not anything else to preach about. There's plenty of things to preach about. But there are seasons and there are times in a church where God has a particular thing that he wants to drill down into our soul and spirit. And so he comes over and over and over again with the same message, perhaps couched uh, in different terms, but the background, the theme is the same. 
And I really don't feel too bad this morning because when I read the word, I find out that God repeated himself many times. And so if God could repeat himself, surely a preacher could do the same. And I'm not, in my many years of pastoring here, I don't ever remember re-preaching anything I've ever preached before. Now, I've preached the same subject. I've preached from the same verse. But I've never gone back and pulled up the old sermon and just redone it. Uh, I just feel like you need fresh manna. And that's what we always strive for. But I, I, I feel like that God, he, he kept pushing me back late in the evening last night. I felt him nudging me more and more this direction. And so I gave in and we'll see how it, it turns out. But there are seasons that we go through. And not every message is for everybody. But I do believe that there are people in this building that what I'm going to say today is going to be pertinent to you, perhaps you alone. But that's how great God is. He will come into a multitude just to minister to one person, one soul. Now, we don't like that about God because we're selfish. We like God to work on us, talk to us. Well, he's going to do that. But he may do that in a different way. But there are some people here today, I don't know who you are, but God knows who you are. And that's all that matters. And he wants to help you redefine your life. You know, things happen in life that mark us. And they have a way of lingering long in life. Sometimes we carry them all the way to our grave. Not always things that we have done. Many times it's the things that others have done to us that so severely affect our life. And we have to live with the effects of that particular issue. And many times it is painful, shameful, embarrassing, hurtful, uh, and yet we are not given the opportunity of being freed from that particular issue. The story that we have read from this morning is one of the greatest stories of how God can work things out in your life that you will find anywhere in Scripture. The marks that God puts upon the life that He calls and that He brings into His table is unlike any other mark that life might put upon you. And in fact, the mark that God puts on you supersedes any mark that life has put on you. That when He invites you to His table, it doesn't matter what your background or what your past or what people have called you or how you have been labeled, when you come to sit at His table... There is a covering of grace and mercy that overshadows everything else in your life from your past of who you were and what people have known you to be. This is one of those fascinating stories that I never get tired of reading. I know that you probably have heard of Mephibosheth. You have to remember that name. It's unusual, so... I'm sure somewhere in your life you've heard the name. Perhaps many of you remember the story. If you don't, we're going to rehearse a few details about it. 
this morning. But there is something about his story that never loses its appeal to me. I never get tired of going back and rereading it because every time I do, God shows me something that I haven't seen before and he helps me consider the implications of what responding to him can do in my life. Did you get that? It helps us understand the implications of what can happen when we respond to him. And I'm going to show you what I mean by that in a moment. It's the story of a tragic fall. Some believe that it was the fault of the nursemaid or what we would call the nanny. At this particular point in Mephibosheth's life, he was five years old and life was unraveling in in his world as he had known it. And uh, his father, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, were engaged in a battle in which they would all lose their lives. And in a moment of panic and fear of trying to escape, knowing the, the, the way of, uh, of secession worked, that it was very common and it was usually the rule that when someone new came to the throne, they eradicated the previous leadership's family so that there would be no competition or fear of revival. And so this family, those that were engaged with those who survived, was in, 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 in very interested in getting uh, out of Jerusalem and out of the sight of anyone who would be uh, looking for them. And in the process of all of that, there was the tragic fall. And some say that the nanny literally dropped him, carrying him, rushing out of the room, getting out of the city, somehow trying to get everything together. She stumbled and fell. Perhaps she fell on him. It seems to me that that is possible because the Bible said that out of that fall, he came away lame in his feet. From that point forward, he was unable to walk normally or conduct himself normally. He was a cripple. He had a severe handicap. He was wounded deeply by this particular fall, dropped and crippled for life, and living at this particular time in tremendous fear of what would happen if he were to have been found out. And if you keep reading, you will find that it is a story of mercy. And it is a story of kindness and compassion. And it is a story of generosity. It's one of the most beautiful portraits of grace that you will find painted anywhere in Scripture. And it is here in this setting that grace clarifies something about Mephibosheth's life. It is in this moment uh, of, of reckoning that we read from in this ninth chapter that grace is able to redefine some things about Mephibosheth's life and give him a new purpose and give him a new sense of being. And so grace has a way of doing that. God's mercy has a way 
of doing that for us. It clarifies. It clears the, the air, the atmosphere. It drives out the fog and all of the distractions so that you can once again see the great mercy and goodness of God. And you and I need to allow His grace to redefine some things in our own life today. And I believe that's what God has come to do. It is the story of how one question changed everything. Is there not anyone left of Jonathan's family? Is there not someone I can show kindness to? David had ascended the throne after Saul's death and another uh, member of Saul's family had been in office temporarily until his servants killed him. Now David is there <clears throat> dealing with the transition, moving into the place of leadership. I don't know exactly what all the details are because it doesn't go into detail, but I have... In my mind, this is what I envision must have happened. That as David looked around Jerusalem and he surveyed what God had done and how he had changed everything, anointed as a young man, and yet all these years he had been a running man, he had been a fearful man, he had been a shepherd, he, he, he had been on... Uh, a music player for Saul at one time and then he was a hunted man and all of the things that God had said about his life and the promise of that anointing seemed to not be coming to pass and now here he is. He's in that place. He's anointed king over God's people and he's looking at all that God had done and his memory bank starts overflowing. He, he starts remembering what had brought him to this place. And somewhere his heart goes back to a time when he made a covenant with a, a friend, a young man by the name of Jonathan, who was Saul's son. David and Jonathan were uh, inseparable. They, there was a love between those that was uncommon. It was not as some people might infer, a homosexual relationship, but it was a deep respect and admiration for one another. David had it toward Jonathan. Jonathan had it toward David. And Jonathan knew that David was to rule. And it was in that relationship that they were able to help one another. And Jonathan had been instrumental in helping David escape from the wrath of his own father, and now those memories are coming back and David is remembering all that he had said about what he was going to do for Jonathan and what his commitment to Jonathan was. And so he brings one of his servants in. He said, I, I have a request to make of you. Is there anybody left of the house of Jonathan that I might show kindness to? And they said, well, there, there's a leftover servant by the name of Ziba and they call Ziba. And Ziba says, yes, there is a son left, but he is laying on his feet. And the sad circumstances are, are brought back to the surface of this man's life and his condition. Injured, separated, hiding, afraid. And when, his, when, when, when he is called on, 
His name is not even mentioned, but his problem is. Don't even know his name yet, but we do know what his problem is. You know, it's amazing that some people, before they ever get in the room, you already know they're there, not by their name, but by their problems. And so when they thought about this this young man, uh, Mephibosheth, they thought about him in relationship to what his problems were and what his issues were and the way they talked about him. They didn't talk about him as a, a, a son. They talked about him in the terms of being a problem. Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. That's how the world often looks at you and I. They look at us as people with problems. And sometimes life even labels us. It puts a tag on our life. And we become known more by the label than by our own name. He was crippled. Everybody say he was crippled. He was wounded. He was lame in his feet. So where do lame people go? Where do lame people live? Well, the Bible says that this lame man lived in a place called Lodibar. A strange name, but interesting. The word Debar, the latter portion of that, means pasture. But any time you put L-O at the beginning of a word, it negates whatever that is that it's talking about. So instead of being a fruitful place, a pasture land, a land where there's cows and sheep and goats, there is no pasture. There is no future. There is no hope. There is no encouragement. There is no thing to look to, to lift you up. This was the place where everyone who would want something good in their life would avoid. It was a place where everything that you needed and desired for life was missing from. And that's where this man, Mephibosheth, had gone to live. It was the town of the forgotten, of those that didn't have. There was no word there. There was no thing there. There was no future there. There was no order there. There was no substance there. There was no shepherd there. It was a barren place. And, and Mephibosheth was living out his life in this place called Lodabar. And he was there for one reason. He was there because fear drove him there. He was there because they were afraid of what would happen to him being of the lineage of Saul. And so out of fear, they had run to find a place where they could hide, where nobody would look for them, where nobody would suspect that any of Saul's lineage is living. And so he is living here because he has been driven here by fear. Living in fear will drive you to some difficult places to live in. And there are people in this building this morning that are living in fear. 
fear of many things, but living in fear of being found out, of being discovered, of being uncovered. And the fact is that everything that Mephibosheth feared was not even true. David was not hunting him to kill him. David was hunting him to bless him. But that's what our fears do to us. Our fears convince us that everybody's out to get us. Somebody's going to hurt us. Somebody's trying to take advantage of us. And when we live in that atmosphere of fear, we allow our mind to play tricks on us. And we allow our mind to convince us that we're not worthy. We'll never be worthy. You'll never merit. You'll never merit. You'll never measure up. You might as well get used to living in this barren, God-forsaken place where there's no word and there's no hope and there's no future. That's what fear does to you. Fear not only puts you in a place that's difficult to live in, but fear takes you out of the position that you were born to fill. Instead of being in the palace, he was out in the barren desert. Instead of being in a place of blessing, he was in a place of barrenness. He was out of the king's presence And he was in the midst of constant fear. Fear puts us in places where we cannot hear the word. And there's some of you right now that you're having a hard time paying attention to what I'm trying to say because fear has that dominant effect upon you. It captures every word that comes to you because fear doesn't want you to grasp hold of the possibility of a word that could transform your life. Fear doesn't want you to latch hold of the hope that the Scripture has given you today. Fear doesn't want you to believe what we've sang about that there's a miracle in this place today. Fear doesn't want you to believe that you can get out of that hole that you put yourself in or life has put you in and fear wants to keep you trapped in that little world of darkness where there's no hope and there's no future and there's no promise of anything better. Praise God. And it will keep you from hearing the word. And the reason it works to keep you from hearing the word, I don't mean just hearing my voice. You hear my voice. Don't confuse that with hearing the word. When you hear the word, it penetrates this and it goes here. It gets beyond this part of your life. Because when it's up here, you can filter it out. When it's up here, you can turn it off. When you keep the word up here, it never gets into the extremities of your life. But if you can ever unlock that door, it will come into this door. And when it gets in this door, it's when it really begins to be transformative in your life. It's when there's an evident change in the way that you live and you conduct yourself. So he's living in a world of fear. He can't hear the word. He takes his meal at the table of depression. He sleeps on the bed of oppression. He gets up in the morning and eats the the breakfast of grief. And he goes to a lunch table of lack and want. Why? Because he has yet to hear the word. But a word is coming. I said a word is coming. 
and the word that's coming is going to transform your present situation and redefine life, redefine the way you look at life, redefine the way you live your life, redefine the way you look to the future. Somebody today needs to hear me. Oppression, fear, doubt, it puts you in places where chaos reigns, where there is no hope and there is no future and there is no way out. But when we meet grace, when the word of His grace comes to our ears and penetrates our heart, it can change everything in our life. Can I say to somebody here this morning, it's time for you to get out of Lodibar. I said it's time for you to get out of Lodibar. It's time for you to understand that that is not where you were born to live. That is not the imprint that's upon your life. That is not what God called you or made you to be. He made you for better things than that. And there's a word that's coming your way this morning that said, Hey, the king is calling you. The king is inviting you to his table. And so David sent and fetched him. I love that word, fetched. (laughs) Makes me think that there's some East Texas people in the Bible. He fetched him out of Lodibar. He went and got him. I don't know what all fetching means, but I have an idea that there might have had to be some persuading because you get used to living in Lodibar. You get used to that kind of mentality. You get used to thinking that you're no good, you're no account, you're never going to merit, you're never going to measure up, you deserve what you've got, you deserve where you are, and so you get to thinking like that, and here he is, he retrieves him by his word. And this is what I love, when I was reading this last night, yesterday afternoon, the Lord spoke to me and said, crippled or not, I still want you. Crippled or not, I still want you. Crippled or not, you're still welcome at my table. Crippled or not, you're still invited to my house. I'm so glad he let some cripples in this morning because I am one of those. But I come today not because of what I am. I come because of who he is and what he has promised to do in my life. And that is allow me to eat at his table continually the rest of my life. Are there any cripples in the house this morning? Hallelujah. Don't let your crippled condition keep you from coming to his table. I'm going to get to that a little while later. It's interesting that Mephibosheth's name means the dispeller of shame. It's amazing that his name prophesied something he couldn't do for himself. The dispeller of shame. He couldn't do it. But I know one that can. Uh, I said he couldn't do it. But he was being called to somebody who could take care of the shame. I want to rewrite your story. I want to redefine your life. 
And the first words that David said to him were, Fear not. Why? Because he knew that when he came, he knew there would be trepidation. I can only imagine what it must have been like for Mephibosheth when he was found out. I mean, you've been hiding? I mean, it's been like in the witness protection agency and somebody uncovers you. And then you get a call and say, we want you to come to the White House. I mean, tell me you're not going to be a little nervous. Tell me you're not going to be a little distraught. Tell me you're not going to have some fearful thought. I mean, that's where you've been living. You've been living in fear. You've been living by fear. You've been driven by fear. So I'm certain at that particular moment that Jonathan's or, or, or Mephibosheth's heart was filled with fear. But the first thing he did was dispel any notion that you're not welcome at my house. You know, it's amazing to me. That's why I love God so much. It doesn't matter how dirty I am. It doesn't matter how broken I am. It doesn't matter how confused. It doesn't matter how messed up I am. When I come through those doors, there's always a welcome feeling. When I come into this house, there's a warmth that I feel. I feel like I belong here. I don't deserve to be here. I don't merit being here. But when I walk through those doors, I feel like somebody said, Hey, welcome to the house. I'm so glad you came today. This is where you belong. This is what I designed you to do. This is what I created you to be. This is where you were designed to live your life. And it doesn't matter how ugly, how dirty, how messed up, how crooked. You know, you look at people right now in our church and you think, man, they sure are clean. You just had not seen all their life. There's drug addicts sitting on these, former drug addicts, I should say. There's alcoholics, former alcoholics sitting on these pews. There's adulterers on these pews. Oh, we didn't, we're not supposed to say that word, are we? I don't know. There may be even a murderer here. I, I don't really know. I don't want to get that deep. But you see, when you come to his table, his table covering is large enough and it's plentiful enough to cover whatever your problems have been, whatever your past has been, Whatever your mistakes were, that when you pull yourself up to his table, it'll cover whatever things are messed up in your life. Hallelujah. The other thing that's interesting to me, if you read this, the next thing that he did was call him son. He said, son... Nobody else had called him that. They called him the cripple. Zeba didn't even have the guts to call him by his real name. He just called him a cripple. He called him the son of Jonathan. But when David talks to him, he calls him by what he is. You're not the son of somebody else. You are a son of mine. You are kin to this throne. You are connected to this throne now. You are related to this kingdom now. And so he speaks to him and he calls him a son. Others may have listed him as a cripple and they may have mentioned his name in connection to his handicap, but David's word makes no mention of his handicap. 
<laughs> That's what's so amazing to me about God is that when God looks at me, He didn't look at me like you look at me. You look at me and say, well, He used to be a drug addict. He used to be on crack. He used to be an alcoholic. But when He looks at me, He doesn't even mention those things. He said, come on in, son. Come on up to the table. Let's eat. Come on, I've got something good prepared for you. Oh, but I, I, I got this history. He said, what history are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. When you come under the covering of my blood, when you come under the protection of my mercy, I don't know what you're talking about. I wish I could convince some of you good Holy Ghost filled people that are constantly living in fear and condemnation of what your past has been. Understand that the Holy Ghost has made you worthy. You haven't made yourself worthy, but the Holy Ghost has made you worthy. And you ought to rejoice because He made you worthy. Praise God. This is what I love about God. The world sees my problems, but God sees the person. (sighs) The world sees my problems, but He sees me. Hallelujah. He sees me and he welcomes me Mephibosheth's life was redefined in that moment no longer Lodabar no longer fear depression sadness barrenness loneliness aching hurting depressed no longer feeling like I don't belong Now I'm welcomed at the king's table. And I love how he said, continually. Not just every other Monday. You know, God doesn't do what some of us do. When people come back to the Lord after they backslid, we put them on parole. Yeah, you gotta, you got to talk to your parole officer ever so often. And once you get through this probationary period, we might let you do something. God, have mercy. I, I feel like preaching right now. <laughs> Whoa! He doesn't bring Mephibosheth back and say, I want you to smell all this, Mephibosheth. Now, in about six months, when you get cleaned up and we get you straightened up, we get you thinking right and acting right, you'll get to come in here and eat. So why do we as a church do that to people? Come on, lady. That's what freedom is all about anyway. He's not waiting for you to get qualified. You're never going to be qualified. He's already qualified me. He said, if you're going to come to my table, I'm going to justify you. I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to cleanse you and make you whole. Quit letting life define you. Quit letting your problems define you. Quit letting your past define you. Quit letting your fears define you. 
continually. Say it. That means Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Monday morning, Monday night. It doesn't matter when you want to come. There's no sign out there that said, well, not today. You haven't fulfilled your probation yet. And get this, folks. He's still a cripple. He's still lame in his feet. He can't. And as far as I know, God never healed him of that problem. But I'm telling you, you can still come to his table, crippled or not. You can still come to his table, lame or not. Your lameness does not limit him. I don't know where we Pentecostals have got the idea. Well, now, you know what? According to rule number 4562.BAC, they can't do that yet. I'm going to mess with somebody this morning. I'm not playing, folks. I'm not, I'm just telling you. Our judgmental Pentecostal attitude has got to go out the window. That's Lodibar. I said that's Lodibar. And we are not going to live at Lodibar. We're going to live at the king's table. And at the king's table, even crippled people get to come and eat. off right now and I'm taking some of your wings away from you continually continually here you 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 hear them you see Absalom come in you see another son come you see another family and then you hear this who in the world is that Ah, yeah. But when he pulls himself up to his table, that covering is there, and what you see is perfectly whole. That's all that matters. You can stand. needs to redefine some of your thinking. You say, Brother Hughes, I don't believe that. I read in the Bible, thou shalt not. I'm not talking about ignoring those. But I can tell you this much. They're never going to learn that in Lodabar. But they can learn it if they keep coming to the king's table.
Brother Hughes, I don't understand your pastoral style. Why do you let them do that? When you look at where they came from. That's what I'm doing it for. Because of where they came from. More importantly, I'm doing it because of where they have come to. They've come to a house of mercy. They've come to a house of grace. Grace is not an excuse for me to keep living like a crook. But I can tell you this much. You keep them in Lodabar, they'll never learn anything different. But if you can keep them around the king's table, somewhere along the line it's going to sink in. Somewhere along the line it's going to get a hook in them. Somewhere along the line they're going to straighten up. Somewhere along the line they're going to write that, that ship and they're going to start doing what they know they ought to do. Praise God. Now, don't anybody leave here today and say, Brother Hughes justifies anything you want to do. Just go do it and you can still be on the... Don't re-preach my sermon. I'm doing all I can do to preach it myself. You don't need to try to... try to. You'll mess it up. Many years ago, there was a group of fishermen that had gathered in a Scottish seaside inn. They were relaxing after a dinner, and as they were eating, they were telling fish stories about the the big ones that got away. And one man in particular was so, he got so animated that when he went to make the gesture about how big the fish was, he happened to bump the server that was bringing a, a pot of tea to the table. And there was a freshly painted white wall right there beside him. And when he did that, that tea cart and everything just went right up against that wall and splattered all over that wall. And I don't know if you know about tea stains, but they're not easy to get out. And the innkeeper came running over and looked. He said, oh, oh, oh my word. It's going to take, we're going to have to repaint this whole wall. And one of the men said, well, maybe not. Maybe not. Let, let me work on it. And so after consideration for a moment, the innkeeper said, okay. And so the man went out to his vehicle. He came back in. He had a little tool chest. He opens it up. He takes out paintbrushes. He takes out pigmented colors, some linseed oil. And he begins drawing, sketching, all all that stain, working all those blotches of color of light and dark into this beautiful muriel. And when he had finally finished, it was of this beautiful buck deer with this huge set of antlers and, and, and in the background of the forest and the trees and you couldn't even see the tea stain any longer. And in the hands of a master, your mistakes can be turned into masterpieces. If you keep coming to the table. I said if you keep, if you'll get out of Lodibar, get out of that negative thinking, get out of that fearful thinking, get out of that fearful living, get out of that place where you are depressed and oppressed and one service to the next you can't get enough. You're living in the wrong location. 
It's plain and simple. Listen to me. If you have to live from service to service and you barely get in here on the next service and you're just completely drained dry, you know what that tells me? You're living in the wrong location. You're living evidently in a place called Lodibar. He wants you to come to the king's table. Because at the king's table, you're never going to go away hungry. You're never going to be turned away hungry. And you're never going to be pre-qualified before you can eat. I'm going to tell you what, I was preaching revival several years ago in, in a town in East Texas, and I won't call the name of it, but we've been praying for revival, and the church said, we want revival, we want revival, and they were praying, we will believe in God, and nothing really had happened until one Sunday night, in the back door, walked in 13 bikers, women and men, dressed like bikers. I'm talking about uh, death angels kind of look. They come walking in the back door and they sat down across the back of the church. You talk about make a church squirm. <laughs> I could see them. I, wa- I kind of looked out of the corner of my eye and I saw some of them reaching, pulling out their pocketbooks, flipping that pill. Oh, no, 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 they don't call no, no. I didn't know any better. I was just a young, dumb evangelist. I believe God wanted to fill them with the Holy Ghost. So I preached to them. When the altar call was given, several of them came to the altar. One of them received the Holy Ghost. Another one received the Holy Ghost. We want to be baptized. This church is in shock. But that wasn't near the shock that was coming. <laughs> Woo! When we came back, we went Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. That was Sunday, Monday night. They're all back. And this time, they're on the front row. Now, they didn't look a whole lot different. I mean, they still had long ponytails. The men did. And they had their big old full beards and they had that rough look on them. But man, they were so happy. They were up there. We started singing and they started shouting and praising God. And I watched those people. I watched those good old saints. They started having the jerks. I mean, they they, they went into convulsions. And then I'm going to tell you what really blew the keg. One of those guys shouted out, Praise Jesus! see some of them fainting. Don't they know that's not how you praise the Lord? You say, thank you, Jesus. Praise the name of the Lord. These guys didn't know any better. They just said, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. And in a little while, it started dawning on some of those good East Texas people that they were at the king's table. 
and wounded, hurt, messed up, broken people get to come to his table. (laughs) You don't have to have a pedigree. He just said, come on. Come on, son. Come on, daughter. I don't care what the world's called you. I'm calling you my son. Well, you haven't lived up to that name yet. Hey, God calls us things before we ever become it so we'll have the hope that we can become that. So don't get too cocky and thinking if he's calling me son, I'm somebody. I'm somebody only as he makes me somebody. Amen. God wants to redefine your life. A life that's been defined by a fall. A life that's been defined by fear. Or a life that has been defined by unworthiness. Listen to me. When Mephibosheth came before David, what does the Bible say he did? Forgive me. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. He falls down on his face. David said, get up. Come on, son, get up. I want you here. You don't have to beg me. I want you at my table. I'm the one that invited you here. But I'm unworthy. I've lived all. You just don't know all I've lived. Well, I do. But I'm not interested in how you lived as much as I am interested in how you can live if you keep coming to my table. So don't ever hesitate to come to my table. So I'm telling somebody here this morning that has been living under condemnation, and I'm talking to some of you that's had the Holy Ghost for years, but you keep living under a condemnation of something that happened, and you get out of it for a little while, then it pulls you right back under. You get out of it for a little while, and it sucks you right back under. You get out of it for a little while, it sucks you right back under its dark cloud. He wants to free you from that. And if you'll come to his table continually, he'll do that. I said if you'll come to his table, he'll continually do that. He'll take away that unworthiness. He'll take away the shame. He'll take away all of the hurt. He'll take away all of the crookedness. Come on. That's what the Holy Ghost wants to do in your life today. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do in your life today. Come on, church. Somebody here this morning that wants to just step out because you're thankful you're at the table of the Father tonight or today. Hallelujah. God wants to turn your mistake into a masterpiece because that's what the King does.